Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Monday, January 25th. We begin with details on a new Calgary-based study on the long-term effects of COVID-19. We speak with a U of C professor on what we know about the after effects and what he aims to learn from the ongoing research. Next, we meet a man who's been living in isolation at a local hotel for the past two weeks as his girlfriend tested positive for the coronavirus. We'll hear about his daily routine from his meals to entertainment and the steps it took to set up his isolation. Then we look at the next move for Canada's energy industry. With the Keystone XL pipeline project on the ropes, we explore the options for diversification in the sector and the opportunities for other industries to grow. We speak with the director of the Institute for Energy and Environmental Policy at Queen's University. And finally, do you wonder why your brain just spaces out sometimes? We'll dig into the new study from the University of Calgary that can break down a person's internal thoughts. A trio of new clinics in Alberta are collecting data to help doctors better understand post-COVID-19 symptoms. With more on what we know about the lasting effects of this virus, Jason Weatherald is an assistant professor of respirology at the University of Calgary and joins us now. Good morning, Jason. Good morning. How are you? Excellent. Thanks so much for joining us. Now, do we call this, you know, do we call people who are suffering long-term effects, is it long haulers? Is that the, are, are doctors and, and official people using that term as well? Yeah, a lot of us are using that term, whether it's long COVID or long haulers. Um, it's still not a really well understood syndrome, but uh, we need some kind of terminology to, to describe it. And I think that's what most people are, are using in the community too. You say, you know, not a well-understood syndrome at this point, but I'm wondering, what do we know? Do we know anything, you know, to be factual as far as the effects moving past over the next several months or years to come? Are there any of those effects concrete yet? So there, so there is some good news. I mean, uh, long-term symptoms seem to be fairly common, but the good news is that they tend to improve over time. Uh, the studies that have followed people up to like three months or longer suggest that the majority of people um, do have an improvement in their symptoms. Some of the things that can happen over the long term include uh, persistent fatigue, tiredness, uh, and shortness of breath. And when people have those symptoms, we do want to have the opportunity to look into it and make sure we're not missing any important diagnosis that, uh, for which there's potential treatment. So, Jason, we know we've got at least three clinics here in Alberta that are collecting that data to help everyone understand better you know, what happens post COVID-19. So as you start to collect that, do you, do you sort of see anything as to, is there anything coming to light at this point as to why some people might suffer longer from it? So we don't have a lot of data here in Alberta yet, but we know from countries that were really badly affected in the first wave that there is some persistent lung damage and it seems to be related to the severity of illness when they first got sick. So we know people who are critically ill and end up in the intensive care unit tend to have persistent uh, lung disease, even though still the people that survive ICU uh, are, are really likely to improve over time. Uh, there are some people who have uh, scar tissue that forms in the lung after having a severe case of pneumonia from COVID. Uh, but again, most of those people tend to get better over time. Is this study with this uh, trio of clinics uh, moving beyond, you know, the, the respirating, uh, respir- respir- you can help me with this too. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not <laughs> yeah, sure what you're asking. Respiratory. <laughs> respiratory. 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 Yeah. I didn't oh, say it right. You I was did. Say, okay. Good on. Respiratory Good um, issues and the fatigue because we've heard a lot about some of the neurological issues. Does this encompass everything that could be an issue down the line for these long haulers? 
so our clinics in Calgary are focusing on, currently on the lung complications. However, we're trying to integrate and, and facilitate easy access to people who also have those symptoms, whether they be neurologic, uh, mental health issues, or, or fatigue. Uh, you know, the dream is to have a, a really integrated one-stop shop clinic, but at this time we're just trying to move forward and have a place for people to access care for potentially serious uh, lung symptoms. Uh, certainly, as you mentioned, there are people that have neurologic problems uh, or mental health issues, and there are specific places that we can refer those people to when we encounter them so that they can access help for that care. Is there any ability at this point, Jason, to sort of share your information outside of Alberta, whether it be across the country or, for that matter, around the world with different countries to see what they're finding? That that will be the goal long term. As, as we're just starting to collect information about people, we will hope to share it uh, with colleagues around the world and hopefully uh, answer some unique questions that we're looking at here um, by you know, publishing our research and, and communicating it with people around the world. Part of this, I would think, uh, would would help in the education when it comes to COVID-19 because uh, if you know somebody, you might know somebody who said, I had a bit of a flu, I had a scratchy throat, I got tested, I had COVID-19, I sat on the couch for two weeks, but that was it. I, I felt better in a couple of days, uh, but not thinking beyond that two-week period. Do you think that that could be one of the results is, you know, educating people that you, you, you might be bringing this with you uh, past two weeks? That's a good question. So uh, our, our clinics are uh, focusing on anyone who's had COVID and has persisting symptoms. Not all of those people will have been hospitalized when they got COVID. So there are people who, as you, as you identified, sort of toughed it out at home, but may still have lingering symptoms. And importantly, still, the vast majority of people who had COVID and recovered in the community will, will be fine uh, over the long term, we think. They don't have, seem to have any persistent problems with their heart or their lungs but for those people who are still suffering you know eight to 12 weeks after having the illness um, they can still access our clinic by referral um, even if they were never hospitalized so jason what do you do when those people come into the clinic what are they what kind of testing are they going through that so you can keep track and and then look at them moving forward so the most important thing we don't want to miss is scar tissue in the lung or the potential of blood clots in the lungs. And so we will be doing some fairly simple tests uh, for all patients that we see, including x-rays of the chest, so we can get a sense whether there's um, persistent uh, inflammation or scar tissue. We also do uh, routine breathing tests that give us a sense as to whether the function of the lungs um, and the exchange of gas is impaired. So those are widely available, fairly inexpensive tests that we would do for most people that have lung disease. If we still can't get to the bottom of what's causing people's symptoms after those basic tests, we can uh, do more advanced imaging of the lungs to look to see whether there's scar tissue or small blood clots in the lung. And for some people, we may find that there's actually no permanent lung damage and their symptoms may be related to this more chronic fatigue or deconditioning. And we can facilitate people getting access to rehabilitation or uh, things like that in the community, for which there's actually a lot of resources. And I'm thinking the research uh, that you're doing right now could be helpful because, yeah, we're in the second wave of this pandemic. Not to say that there couldn't be another wave or also good uh, as far as future pandemics are concerned. Definitely. This um, virus is behaving a bit different than things we've seen in the past. We have seen some people with influenza with long-term symptoms, but 
the sheer volume of people affected by COVID-19 and and the number of people who have these long-term symptoms uh, seems to be a lot higher than what we've seen before. So planning for this, uh, we'll learn from our patients uh, as we treat them. Um, it's really an evolving thing and, and, and we don't know everything yet, but we're going to try to learn. And, and put, as you mentioned, this could inform how we handle uh, and organize care for future pandemics. Thanks so much for joining us, Jason, telling us what you're doing there. Appreciate it. Thanks very much. That is Jason Weatherall, assistant prof of respirology at the University of Calgary. And of course, we are one year from the first case that was found here in Canada. So uh, talking a little bit about, you know, where we're at as we mm-hmm. move forward and this long hauler thing, you and I, we've interviewed, as you said, quite a few people that are still suffering the, the consequences of it and others, boom, it's gone. One woman, Judy Gabriel, we spoke with, it was weeks and weeks. I think it may have been even almost two months after. Still had a cough when we were interviewing her. Mm-hmm. She said, I don't know when it'll go away. Might be worth, uh, you know, catching up with her again. But to, to be studying something that nobody's ever studied before. Fascinating. It's, it's fascinating and at the same time, super organic. Every day is different, I would think. 842 now, and when his girlfriend tested positive for COVID-19, Michael Dargie tested negative himself, but went into isolation for 14 days as per provincial rules. He's expected to be set free this Wednesday, but we've tracked him down to see what it's been like spending two weeks as a guest of Alberta's Isolation Hotel program. And he joins us now. Good morning, Michael. Hey, how are you guys doing? Excellent. Thanks for joining us. Okay, first of all, where are you exactly? I'm at the Ramada Plaza downtown. And has this been a tough life for you over the past couple of years, getting, you know, kind of hanging out in a hotel room, getting looked after? <laughs> it, well, it's not terrible. Um, you know, I, I have a window so I can see the outside world. <laughs> I, go ahead. Let's just talk about how you got into the program, because I know that at first there were some questions as to how it would work. Did you find it easy to find lodging when you were told that you had to quarantine? Yeah, well, I mean, and this is such a great part of the story is that um, I called 811 and went through the whole process, obviously getting tested myself, and then learning that I had to quarantine. Um, it really took, you know, maybe 10 hours uh, total. Like I talked with, you know, probably three different people, and they set it up. It was super easy to get into. And then I just basically came in, um, you know, very safe and sanitized into the Ramada. They had everything ready for me, and I came up to my room, and I've been here ever since. And you literally are not allowed to leave your hotel room, are you? No, I, I can open the door to get my meals, and that's it. Let's talk about the meals. Is this something that you have to order on your own or is there a menu? Uh, is a, is a cost on you or is it on the uh, government? Well, it's, it's all covered um, and it, they just make it so easy to just be here and, you know, not put others at risk. So there is a menu and I get to choose, you know, what I'd like for, um, you know, lunch and dinner and snacks throughout the day. And then they show up at prearranged times. Um, I've got, a, you know, people knock on the door, tell me that it's there. I wait a couple minutes so they can clear the area. Then I open the door, slide my tray in, and then close my door again. I mean, it, you know, we laugh about it because it sounds, for most of us who have, you know, all, all kinds of, you know, kids running around, Andrew and I, family, so much going on. It sounds very relaxing, Michael. But that being said, it is a really important program, this uh, isolation hotel program that happens right across the province, where you, if you can't isolate in your own home, here's an option for you. So as you said, you keep everybody safe. Yeah, that's right. And I, I, I'm really grateful for the program. Um, you know, as you guys mentioned, my girlfriend... Uh, did test positive and we have a tiny house in Kensington with one bathroom and it was just not feasible for me to be there. Um, you know, so going through the program has certainly helped us out, it's helped her out um, and hopefully it's helping other people out as well. 
your two weeks coming to an end, I, I believe midweek. Uh, what have you been doing to pass the time? Did you bring a whole stack of books or is it internet <laughs> time? What, what have you been doing? Working? Uh, well, I've been working. Um, yeah, I've been reading. I've been working. I've been writing about my adventures, which, uh, you know, has been, a, you know, cathartic. Are you getting any exercise at all? How can you pace around <laughs> your room in any way, shape, or form? <laughs> Not unlike a caged animal at the zoo. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, I go past the window, um, you know, it probably takes me about, I would say, 27 seconds to do a lap around the room. Not that you've timed it or anything, right? <laughs> now, have, yeah. are you, is there Morse code? Do you knock on the wall? Are there other people who are in isolation the same as you, or do you know anything about that? Well, there there were some people early on, uh, but they have uh, since left. So I'm pretty much by myself up here. Well, and how's your how's your girlfriend doing now? Uh, she's on the mend, which is good. Uh, she's a healthcare worker, and uh, it's it's been a slow road for her. Um, but you know, all indications are that she's getting better, which is great. Well, we're grateful for what she does. And I think it's just important that we talk to you about this and, and let people know that, you know, if you live in a small home or you have, you know, multi-generational families or a big family, there are options if somebody gets sick for people to go and quarantine to make sure they stay safe. And, and, and to do it, in it's not such a bad way to live for a couple of weeks, is it? No, it, it's really not. And I mean, uh, you know, you've got really nothing but time. Catch up on reading, you know, uh, learn a new skill, you know, take a drawing course online. <laughs> And you did this all through 811, correct, Michael? That is correct. Yeah, I called 811 and they set all the wheels in motion. And it, it, I say that it happens in 10 hours, but it really happened in a matter of minutes. I was talking with different people. They just had to, um, you know, coordinate things on the other side with a hotel. But it was very painless, very easy. Um, you know, just uh, they tell you to bring stuff, like bring books, bring, you know, phone chargers. Um, nobody can visit you in the room. So uh, bring what you can. Bring what you can, and you've done it. Your time is coming to a close. Thank you for your time this morning, Michael. Thank you so much, guys. Appreciate it. That's good stuff. That's Michael Dargie, and he is right now in isolation for 14 days, coming to an end on Wednesday, part of the Alberta's Isolation Hotel Program. 6.09 on the morning news. Should Canada look to diversify its oil sector as newly elected President Joe Biden halts the Keystone XL pipeline? Warren Maybe, the director of Queen's Institute for Energy and Environmental Policy at Queen's University, joins us now to answer that question. Good morning to you, Warren. Good morning. This is not exactly a new question, something we've toiled with in Alberta for, for quite some time. But could this, you know, ultimately be the straw that broke the industry's back? Well, it's certainly another strong signal, you know, that uh, the international markets are changing uh, President Biden is signaling a big shift south of the border, and the Americans are our biggest customer, our biggest partner in, in developing energy. Uh, <clears throat> we know, you know, that that ultimately we're going to be shifting more and more away from using gasoline, uh, maybe even from using diesel, and these are the big bulk products that come off of the oil sector. So what else can we do? And you know, the, the answer is actually we can do a lot. There's a lot of value-added uh, product that comes from oil that we're not going to lose the demand for. You know, there's going to be continued demand for things like plastics, resins, chemicals, things like that. As you say, oil and gas not going away anytime soon, but it is time, you know, as you look at other countries and we look forward, we, we need to start thinking, you know, for what is next most definitely, and especially for this province of Alberta. It's, I mean, you know, we, we need to find the next thing that's going to keep us and maybe make us as big as we once were 
but different. Yeah, and I think that that's the important thing to remember is that the oil itself is an incredibly valuable resource. Uh, Alberta uh, has, you know, top engineers, uh, top uh, scientists who can, you know, look into these alternatives. Uh, we're a, a country that, that can support a lot of innovation and a lot of development, but we do have to get kind of oriented and organized behind it. And, you know, I think that as long as there's a promise of uh, continuing with the status quo, the big bulk sales, you know, increase the volume that comes off the oil sands, increase the volume that we're selling to the border, there's not as much incentive to really diversify and move into those innovative sectors. Is this one a large, uh, you know, to a large extent, a change in mindset? Because I know that, you know, obviously we still need oil, uh, but I think that there's this, this uh, thought that, you know, if we're not getting it from our own nation, we're getting it from other places that might not be as ethical and might not have the product that we have and that we take great pride in. Uh, but, uh, you know, getting it out of our head um, that, uh, you know, uh, we, you know, we're going to be getting it elsewhere. We might as well get it in our, in our nation, whereas we should be getting other products here, like switching that mindset. Yeah, it's. I think that you're right. There is uh, a shift in mindset that has to happen. Uh, we need to stop thinking of the oil sector as kind of the enemy. And, and you know, there are places across Canada where uh, I think that that's true. We need to start thinking about it as uh, one of the tools that we have to manage this climate emergency. And, you know, when I look at the future... I do see us getting energy from a variety of different places, but I do see us using oil as one of the resources that that are, you know, kind of pillars of the economy. It's just, it may not be the same. We may not be burning as much of the product. Uh, and that is a, a shift in the way that we interpret the sector itself. And it's obviously far more difficult here in Alberta as well, because there are so many people's lives, so many jobs that, you know, are, are wrapped up in the ONG sector. And it, you, you, that's, you can't hope for that to go away really quickly either, because that is, it's already been devastating to this province and it will continue to be until we do find that next best thing. But, you know, as Andy's saying, it's really, it is, you, you've got to start looking forward, unfortunately, but that's hard when you're, you're so invested in it. Well, that's, it is incredibly difficult. And I know that there are so many people who have built their livelihoods around this sector. Uh, but, you know, Wayne Gretzky is always famous for saying, you've got to skate to where the puck is going instead of skating to where the puck is now. Where the puck is now is, you know, big volume, uh, relatively low value gasoline and diesel. That's the primary driver behind the oil sector. Where the puck is going is those high-value, more niche products. And I think that we have the, the capability to make this shift, but we do need to, you know, kind of build the political will and build the social will uh, in order to do that. Warren, whenever you're making a huge change in life, and I think this is personally or as a business, it's always good to, to look for examples and maybe look for some motivation. Uh, so I'm wondering, are there any other nations we can look at who have gone through a similar process or is Canada, uh, Canada kind of a standalone with this switch and this morph to include more industry? Well, you know, we're not the first to start to look at different ways to use oil. Uh, Norway is certainly starting to do that. Uh, some of the Southeast Asian countries, Malaysia, are starting to invest in new types of refineries that uh, are really geared towards the high-value products rather than the low-value, the bulk products. 
so we are starting to see this happen. But it's not to say that we're the last to the party either. I think that uh, we can still be early enough adopters that we can reap a lot of the benefit. And, you know, as I was saying, one of the big strengths that we have in this country is an incredible brain trust. You know, there are engineers, there are chemists and scientists. Uh, we've got all kinds of horsepower to make this happen. Uh, and I think that we could have a real advantage in making this transition. Is this something that we need to, to very much lean on government for and have our government, you know, shop the world and offer incentives for, for different types of industries? Or is this something that can be organic and, uh, you know, that businesses themselves uh, can can force that change by, by diversifying? Well, certainly the best situation would be to have government behind this and to have government supporting it because it is, you know, there's a lot of risk in changing from one way of working to another uh, and that brings a lot of uncertainty and governments can help take away uncertainty by backstopping the risk. Uh, we've been doing that, you know, our governments have ponied up and they've invested in projects, but is investing in pipelines the right thing to be doing at this point or should we be re investing in these new technologies? And that's the shift that I'd like to see the governments make. Uh, I think that they could be very strong partners in doing this and they could make it a lot easier and, and a lot less risky for the industry and, and for the individuals that have to go through this. Important discussion for sure. Difficult one for us here, particularly in Alberta. Thanks for joining us this morning. Appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. That is Warren Mabby, who is director of the Queen's Institute for Energy, uh, Warren Mabby, excuse me, director of Queen's Institute for Energy and Environmental Policy. 909 on the morning news. Is your mind focused, fixed, or wandering? Julia Cam, an assistant professor of psychology at the University of Calgary, joins us now to discuss a new study that breaks down a person's internal thoughts. Good morning to you, Julia. Good morning. To get things started, can you give us a quick overview of this study and why it's being done? Sure. So using EEG to measure individuals' brain activity, we were able to basically distinguish whether individuals are having certain types of thoughts and how their thoughts unfold over time. So um, essentially, we discover these certain patterns in our brain for when our attention is not focused on a task. And that's consistent with uh, work that I've been doing this past decade. And more importantly, the novel aspect is that we discovered these specific brain patterns from when our thoughts wander from topic to topic. So, um, for example, if you're starting to think about, um, you know, uh, what you want to do this weekend and you start to reminisce your last vacation to Italy and thinking about yourself on the Mediterranean coast, and then all of a sudden you think about the fact that you haven't prepared for dinner yet. So these are the kinds of thoughts that some of our participants may be having. And we now have a marker in the brain that tells us when individuals are having those kinds of thoughts. So it may seem random, but is there a pattern to why we go to the thought we go to then? Um, that's a really good question. And I think that's something that we're still trying to discover. You know, what determines when we're having this kind of thought versus that kind of thought. One thing that we do know is that when we are not paying attention to what we're supposed to be doing, they tend to relate to our personal concerns. So imagine you had a fight with your partner during breakfast one morning, and then you go off to, your, to work. You know, throughout the day, you're more likely to be thinking about that argument that you've had more than, um, you know, the work that you're supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. um, so there's certainly um, a, a lot of, you know, these events in our lives that sometimes seem a little bit more important than the work we're supposed to be doing. 
Okay, so you can't tell the details are specific of a thought, but you can tell the type of a thought versus me sitting down and uh, or me giving a speech. So you know I'm actively engaged. You know I'm using my brain for a certain way versus me sitting on the couch and staring at the wall. Exactly. So yes, it's important to mention that we cannot read your mind. Um, that's certainly not what we can do yet, at least uh, with the type of technology that we have. Um, but yes, exactly. We can tell if you're, for example, paying attention to what I'm saying right now, or whether you're thinking about all the other things that you have to do for the rest of the day. Oh, sorry, I wasn't paying attention. No kidding. Um, <laughs> is there a way you can change that, that, that mind wandering? Is there a way we can do something to stop our brains from, from behaving that way? Yeah, so that's one of the ways in which this finding may be helpful for individuals who, who might want to stop those thoughts from happening, right? And an important first step is to be able to detect them. And so what our findings can potentially help with is to say, before an, even an individual can even detect it themselves, we can just measure their brain activity and say, hey, you know, we're picking up on this pattern and you tend to show this pattern where your thoughts are wandering from topic to topic. And so just bringing their awareness to having those types of thoughts would be an important first step in themselves um, and stopping themselves from having them. Um, so, you know, just to commit maybe a more concrete example, let's say complaining about the weather all the time, hypothetically speaking. Mm. Um, if I want to stop complaining about the weather, I have to first catch myself mm. um, when I complain about the weather in order to stop myself from doing it. And so being aware that it's happening it, as it's happening is an important first step. So it's, it's a, you know, if you look at nature versus nurture, it's not perhaps genetic, but we can work and train our brain like, like another muscle? Yeah, that's sort of the hope is that if we can, you know, provide uh, this kind of information to an individual as they're having these kinds of thoughts, maybe eventually they can catch themselves from doing it um, more often and more regularly. Um, although I will, I will say that, you know, it's, it's not always a, a bad thing to engage in these kinds of thoughts, right? Um, I think we can all imagine taking pleasure and allowing our thoughts to freely jump from topic to topic, just maybe not so much when we're, you know, trying to meet a deadline or preparing for an exam yeah. and whatnot. Can it be a form of, of protection for us, whether it be mentally, physically, spiritually, to kind of zone out of something and, and go elsewhere as well? Is it, is it maybe the body you know, keeping us safe in a way? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I can at least say anecdotally that when I'm constantly being really focused, it's very mentally draining. And so taking your mind off of a task and just letting it go freely from, you know, one topic to another, I think it's a way for us to replenish, so to speak, these, um, you know, mental resources um, that is um, not a limited uh, a pool of resources, right? So I think letting your mind go off and jumping from one topic to another is an opportunity for our mind to uh, uh, charge up these resources again, so to speak. Julia, can you give us some more uh, practical examples on how this could be used? I'm thinking medically as well or therapeutically, like, for example, somebody who lives with ADHD and, uh, you know, how that could have an impact. Yeah, so um, so what we've been talking mostly about this type of thought that jumps from one topic to another, and this is a kind of thought that characterizes the types of thoughts that individuals with ADHD tend to report. And so, like I was mentioning, if we can detect that these individuals have these thoughts in real time, then that's one of an important step to get them to stop having these thoughts. So once we catch them in action, we can say, okay, so you're having these kind of thoughts, and then they can try to reorient their attention to what they're supposed to be doing, um, or at least to stay more focused. 
Um, and another kind of thought that they, to, they tend to report, and you know, just normal, individuals without ADHD as well, are thoughts that they have when they're not paying attention to the tasks that they're supposed to be doing. So these off-task thoughts, so to speak. And that's another way and another type of thought that we can detect potentially in real time and say, hey, right now you're not paying attention to the lecture or you're not paying attention to the report that you're supposed to write. And um, that's sort of uh, another way in which these uh, markers can be helpful for, uh, which is that we can detect them in real time. And so, you know, we don't know right now yet um, how we can, you know, the research doesn't really say you can then do these five different steps to help yourself stay focused. But at the very least, we can now determine when these thoughts occur in real time. Julia, is there anything at all you can look bad at, back at it and compare your findings to? I mean, we're such in a, an immediate society now and our, you know, you always hear that, uh, you know, our, our thoughts, we can keep focused on something for about the same amount of time as a, a goldfish, for example. <laughs> yeah. Has that changed over the years or, or do we not really know that information? Yeah, it's a lot of it hard to tell. So we certainly know that um, older individuals seem to be able to focus uh, better, um, but there are a lot of different um, reasons for this, right? So if we're comparing different uh, generations, there's a lot of factors other than age that might contribute to it. Um, but what we do know is that um, individuals who are younger tend to report that they're mind-wandering or that they're not paying attention to what they're supposed to be doing more than uh, individuals who are older. Um, and so that's, you know, I think it takes a little bit more research to determine what those factors may be. Um, but we, we certainly are bombarded with a lot of, you know, um, news and uh, different types of information all the time now, more so than we did even just 10 years ago. Julia, it sounds like a very ambitious and interesting mm-hmm. study. Thank you uh, for your time this morning. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. That is uh, Julia Cam, assistant professor at the University of Calgary's Department of Psychology.